Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. John chapter 1, and while you're turning there, let me pray for us. Father God, would you hear our prayers right now? Would you draw near to us? Would you fill all of us full of the Holy Spirit? Or give us more wisdom, more revelation, more insight and understanding into your word uh, that we may seek to be conformed to the image of Christ, uh, that we may seek to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please you in all respects, and to bear fruit in every good work. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, John chapter 1, and we're going to talk about the idea of discipleship this morning. Sounds like maybe y'all have already talked about it some, and uh, that Chad has given you some great insight on that, and so going to just try to pick up and follow along with that. So let me, the word disciple, it literally just means a learner, a pupil, a student, but as we're going to see here in the context of this passage, it really means more than that, not less than that, but the idea of a follower, somebody that's really following somebody else's conduct and pattern of life, imitating their life. So here's just kind of a bottom line definition. What does it really mean to be a disciple? It is to a a more mature believer mentoring a less mature believer for the purpose of multiplication. And I'll explain more about what I mean about that as we go along. But you may say, well, man, how, how mature do I have to be to disciple somebody else, to mentor somebody else? Well, you just really have to be more mature than that person. Okay? Uh, well, how immature do I need to be maybe to have a mentor or to have somebody disciple me? You just need to find somebody that's a little bit more mature than you, that can give you something, that can teach you something maybe that you don't know. All right. Now, we're going to start out, and what I want us to see, we're really going to look at two of the greatest disciplers of all time this morning. John the Baptist, who there's a place, just write this down, you can go look at it later if you want to. It's Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus basically said about John the Baptist, up until this point, before Christ came on the earth, that John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived. Jesus said that about him. So it's true. So we're going to look at the discipleship of John the Baptist, but we're also going to look at the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the first thing that I want you to see is that even when Jesus started his discipleship, he did it in the context of a movement, of of, of a a preaching revival. EJ was praying this morning about a revival. There was really a revival going on under John the Baptist's preaching. And Jesus, when he first started his first discipleship group, He started it in the context of the revival that John the Baptist was leading. So here's just kind of an introductory point for all of us. If you get serious about trying to disciple others, don't go do it in isolation. Don't pull away. The best kind of discipleship happens in the context of a bigger movement of the gospel. And that might be a college ministry, as some of you experienced when you are in college. Or it can be, and often should be, in a local church. Do your discipleship in the context of a bigger movement of what God's doing. But here's the first point I want us to see, is that good discipleship is repetitive. Good discipleship is repetitive. So let's start in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, this is John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the Son of the world. And then skip down to verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, you notice what happened there? 
The first day, John is with some of his disciples. Jesus comes by. John points and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what was the response of his disciples? Nothing. So this is kind of a side note, but parents or anybody that's trying to disciple or mentor somebody else, do you ever get frustrated because you feel like, man, I feel like I'm doing my best to teach, to pass on? And you could, this may be at your place of work and you've got some new employee you're training. And I keep telling them the same thing and they don't get it. Well, one of the best teachers in the world, John the Baptist, had the same experience. Sometimes you're going to be telling somebody something and they're going to seem to have no response. Don't give up. Good discipleship, good mentoring, it's repetitive. Because the next day, he essentially says the exact same thing and it's like the penny drop, something clicked and they said, we're supposed to follow this man. This is the man that the entire Old Testament was pointing to and they leave to follow him. Good discipleship, good mentoring, good parenting, good teaching. There's a sense of continually beating the same truth into people's heads. And guys... I think the reason that a lot of people in the church today don't get as involved in discipleship and discipling others is to think, well, man, if I'm going to do like deep discipleship with people, I've got to be an expert in all of this kind of grand uh, theology, and there's just so much I don't understand. Honestly, guys, the best discipleship is just going deeper in the basics. It's not trying to talk about a bunch of 201 secondary things, but it's going deep into 101. I mean, let me just give you an example. I mean, I bet most of us have heard, if you're going to be a strong, mature Christian, it's important to read the Bible every single day. I mean, if anybody ever heard that? Let's see. You know, show of hands. Okay? But I want to, you know, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this one. Well, no, I will ask for a show of hands on this one. How many of you, after you heard that the very first time, you started reading your Bible every single day and you never missed a day since then? Anyone? I didn't think so. Me either. I mean, how many times and how many different contexts do we have to hear somebody say, if you want to be a growing, mature Christian, you got to read your Bible every day? A hundred? A thousand? Before it finally clicked, and we're like, I think I really need to read my Bible like every single day. Good discipleship goes deeper in the basics, it's repetitive. The second thing, it's interactive. It's interactive. Look at verse 38. Look at the very first thing that Jesus does with his first two disciples. And our best understanding is this is John the Apostle, later becomes John the Apostle, and then it's Andrew. Verse 38, Jesus turned and he saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? The very first thing that Jesus did in his discipleship is he asked him a question. One of the problems in the PCA, and I'm a PCA guy too, okay, and a lot of kind of reformed denominations, is we can put too much emphasis on upfront formal teaching. Now, please hear me. I'm not against upfront formal teaching. That's what I'm doing right now, right? So, this sermon is not an anti sermon sermon. That wouldn't make any sense. I'm for it. But this is very interesting. If you study the Gospels, And you can't figure out this perfectly, but you can get a pretty good idea. And you try to read through all four Gospels and try to say, now, this teaching that we find of Jesus, was it more of like a planned sermon, maybe like the Sermon on the Mount? Or was it more kind of an informal, as-you're-going conversation, like when he's walking down the road and he hears the disciples arguing, he's like, hey guys, what were y'all arguing about on the road? And they don't want to talk, right? They kind of all look at their feet because they were arguing about who was the greatest disciple. And then he decides to give them some teaching on, let me tell you what true greatness is about. Here's what you'll find. It's roughly 50-50. About 50% of what we find in the gospel seems to be Jesus more a prepared, formal, upfront, 
monologue teaching. Sit down and take notes kind of thing, like a Sunday morning worship. That's good. That's great. But guys, this ought to really impact us. The God of the universe became a man, and he only had a public ministry for about three years. And as best we can tell, he spent about half that time in more informal dialoguing, asking them questions, listening to what they said, speaking back into it. Does that make sense? So here's what I'm saying. In, in my experience in ministry, it is the rare exception that somebody can listen to even the best preacher in the world, whoever you think is the best preacher, listen to that person over and over and over again and get everything they need just from an upfront teaching. Most of us, I, I dare say, maybe all of us, what we need is we also need somebody after the sermon that we can sit down and we can dialogue about, well, exactly what did that mean? And exactly how does that apply to my life? And exactly what is that supposed to look like in my personal application on Monday morning? Does that make sense? Okay? We need that. It's interactive. There's a great guy. Uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's in heaven now. Richard Baxter, he was one of these English Puritans hundreds of years ago. He was probably one of the greatest preachers of all times. Greatest, he wrote a bunch of books, a great author. But here's the interesting thing, is that part of what he did in the little city, the little village that he ministered to back in England hundreds of years ago, is once or twice a week he would go around to the families and he would meet with the families individually and he would catechize them. I mean, y'all use that word, right, in the service. He would ask them questions. And part of what he, there's a quote by him where he basically said, I've had people that have sat under my preaching for 20 years. And he's one of the greatest preachers maybe of all time. And he said, and they couldn't explain to me the basic doctrines of like justification by faith alone. Now listen, this was hundreds of years ago in England. Most people didn't have a lake house. Like they weren't on vacation a lot. They, they were at church most Sundays. 20 years and they still weren't getting it. Listen to this quote by Richard Baxter. I have found by experience that some ignorant persons, okay, that's maybe a little offensive, but he's just being honest, okay, who have been so long unprofitable hearers, meaning they're, they're coming, they're listening, but they're not profiting from it, have gotten more knowledge and more remorse of conscience, so he's saying they've gotten conviction of sin, in half an hour's close discourse than they did from 10 years of public preaching. You understand what he's saying there? For some people, you could show up and hear a great sermon every single Sunday for 10 years and get almost nothing. And then you could sit down with a mentor for 30 minutes and dialogue back and forth and God might work more powerfully in that 30 minutes than He did in the whole 10 years. Does that make sense? Not the way it works for everybody. That's the way it works for some people. Discipleship should be interactive. Here's Tim Keller. A lot of you all are familiar with him. A great preacher, a great author, but listen to what he says. We do not find a classroom relationship between Jesus and his students, nor did his students relate this way with one another. Instead, he created a community of learning and practice in which there was plenty of time to work out truth in discussion, dialogue, and application. Okay. Just listen to the statistic. We forget 40% of what we hear within 20 minutes. And only remember 20% a week later. But if we discuss it, much better chance we're going to keep it, we're going to remember it. Confucius, all right? Don't quote him a lot, but this one is a good one, all right? Tell me, and I will forget. Show me, and I may remember. Involve me, and I will understand. 
And one of the best ways to involve somebody is to sit down and have a back and forth Q&A conversation. How are you personally applying the Bible in your life? We need the church service. We need preaching. We need good books. None of this is against that. But we all, it's, it's, it's kind of like saying, which one's more important? If you've got to take a flight, you know, do you like the left wing of the airplane or the right wing of the airplane? I like both, right? I don't want to pit the two against each other. So what's more important, the upfront preaching or the small group discipleship group? It's both. Let's get both. That's when people will really grow and they'll really thrive. Third point, it's intensive. Or you might say it's intimate. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. So notice how this whole thing starts. They start following Jesus. He says, what are you guys really looking for? And they're like, we just, we kind of want to know where you're staying. We want to hang out with you. And he's like, great, come on, come to my house. Come where I'm staying. And they got there and they hung out the rest of the whole day. And this is interesting. It says it was the 10th hour. John's gospel was probably written about 65 years later after this event. But what John's telling you is, hey, I can tell you the exact hour I first got to sit down and have a conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how much it impacted me. 65 years later, still marked in my memory. Guys, more is caught than taught. The best kind of discipleship is life on life. There's no impact without contact. Again, it's not just meeting in a coffee shop and having Q&A, as good as that is. Okay? But it's doing normal life together. If we flip over to John chapter 2, don't worry, we're not going to get there this morning. It's not going to be that long. All right? But if we did, you know what we find Jesus doing with the disciples? Going to a wedding. Going to a party. They were just doing normal life together. They were just hanging out together. On a Friday afternoon or something. So much of the best stuff in discipleship is not about even the talking. It's about the modeling. It's about the example. Let me give you a couple examples of this. I grew up in a good Christian home. One perfect, but it was pretty darn good. And my parents, they were Baptists. I mean, how, many, how many people here grew up Baptists? Just out of curiosity, all right? All right, that's, that's most PCA churches in the South, all right? Half of us grew up Baptist, all right? But listen, my parents, they tried to do family worship. They were serious about it. But none of the kids, I'm the oldest of five, none of the kids, we didn't really like family worship. We never had a great attitude. It never seemed to go well. But my parents, they were bound and determined. We're going to do some kind of home family worship. And they tried everything. I remember one time, I don't know where he found this. My dad found literally the entire Bible in comic strip form. And he bought the Bible in comic strip form. And like for a couple of weeks, it was really cool. And then we were bored with that, right? And then he would find something else. And so then he found this thing where it told a Bible story. And then it would tell like a story from the animal kingdom, like something that a beaver was out there doing, building a dam or something. And then it would like teach you like a moral lesson. Now, I'll tell you a story. There was one story in this book. It was about a teenage boy. And I guess this was a true story. And for some reason, he had a pet bat. And you think, why in the world did any sane parent let their child have a pet bat? I don't know. I don't remember that part. All right. But this boy had a pet bat. In his room, he also had a box fan. And this boy learned that if I turned the box fan on the lowest setting, the bat could fly straight through it. If he turned the box fan on medium, the bat could fly straight through it. If he turned it on too high, the bat could not fly through it. It had some kind of sonar, radar, or flyway. What in the world does that have to do with God, Jesus, or the Bible? I have no clue. Now here's the point. Why do I tell that story? And I'm not exaggerating, guys. I've literally tried to really think hard about this because I don't want to be exaggerated. 
That's the only thing I remember from 18 years of family devotions. I'm not, I'm not joking. Now listen, please hear me. I'm not against family devotions. I'm pro-family devotions. I've done it so much that all my kids are sick of it now. I think it probably laid a bedrock foundation of Bible truth in my soul that's subconscious. But what I'm trying to tell you is I don't remember any of the formal teaching of my mom and dad. I tell you what I do remember. I remember if I woke up early enough, they were always both awake reading their Bible. I remember every time they spanked me, they'd quote a verse to tell me why they were spanking me. That stuck with me. I remember if we ever had a decision to make as a family or an individual, it was like, well, we need to pray about it. I remember my dad was a businessman. Sometimes I'd go to his office and there'd be a guy leaving from church. I'd be like, why is that guy here, Daddy? He's like, well, I'm, I'm kind of mentoring the guy. I remember my dad coming home from a trip one time and he said, I had a weird experience today. I was driving down the road and there were a bunch of convicts on the side of the road and I felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to stop and share the gospel with them. I didn't want to do it, but I pulled over and I got out and a sheriff came up with a shotgun and ran me off. He's like, but I tried, you know. <laughs> I remember after church one Sunday, we're going out to eat and there's like a, a war veteran, a wounded war veteran on the side of the road in a, a wheelchair selling pencils. And dad's like, I'm going to pull over and invite this guy to go to lunch with us. And we're like, no, dad, please, that'll be weird. Okay. That's the kind of stuff I remember, guys. More is caught than is taught. Uh, my wife and I, when we first came on staff with Campus Outreach, we were up in Florence, Alabama, at the University of North Alabama. We were there for about four or five years. And by God's grace, a lot of people came to Christ, a lot of people were involved in the ministry, and then after four or five years, Lynn and I were coming back to Birmingham. But I still knew most of the students. I was still connected to most of them. So I wanted to kind of do like a little discipleship survey to see what they had learned the most from so I could try to become a better discipler. So I don't remember exactly, but I asked them three or four questions, like what was the best thing, what was the worst thing, and I thought, you know, they were going to maybe say something about this great book we'd read together or something. You know what? Maybe the main thing that most of them said was just bringing us into your home and letting us see how y'all did life. Because most, and it didn't hit me till later, most of those students had come from either a broken or a non-Christian home. And so just coming into a Christian home where me and my wife fought, and they came in on some of our fights. But by God's grace, we made up. It impacted them. Does that make sense? It wasn't any of my great teaching. It was just the model. It was the example. Okay? Here's another Keller quote. Listen to this. The chief way in which we should disciple people, or if you prefer, prefer to form them spiritually, is through community. Growth in grace, wisdom and character does not happen primarily in classes and instruction through large worship gatherings or even in solitude. Most often, growth happens through deep relationships and in communities where the implications of the gospel are worked out cognitively and worked in practically in ways no other setting or venue can afford. The essence of becoming a disciple is, to put it colloquially, becoming like the people we hang out with the most. Just as the single most formative experience in our lives is our membership in our nuclear family, so the main way we grow in grace and holiness is through deep involvement in the family of God. Community itself is one of the main ways we do outreach and discipleship and even experience communion with God. Okay, Here's a quote by John Calvin. You have to quote Calvin every time you preach in a PCA church or you lose your uh, status. So here it is, all right? For it is not enough. This is Calvin, guys. For it is not enough that a pastor in the pulpit teach all in common. 
if he does not also add particular instruction. Okay? And he uses Paul as an example and he says, also individually and private in their own houses. For instruction given is sometimes of little service. And some cannot be corrected or cured without particular medicine. Right? I mean, think about the things in your life that have helped you change the most spiritually. How many times was it an upfront sermon? Maybe some. And then how many times was it more of a one-on-one conversation with a brother or a sister in Christ getting in your face and helping you? Another side note. You know the reason that I think more people in the church don't really get involved in discipleship at this level? It's just costly, guys. This is time intensive. This is not easy. This costs something. Sometimes it's easier just to write a check and be done. Right? Sometimes it's easier just to show up to a meeting you know it's only going to last an hour and when it's done, I can go home. But to get involved in somebody's life is messy. They might call you in the middle of the night. Put your phone on silent while you sleep, you know, and call them back in the morning. All right? When God wanted to save us, He didn't just send a book. He ultimately sent Himself. He sent a person. Get involved. The last point is this, guys. True discipleship is transformative. It leads to life change. It leads to multiplication. Let's keep going in the passage here. Okay? Um, Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Listen, the implication is John went and got his brother James. Andrew went and got his brother Peter. Philip, first thing he does is goes and gets Nathaniel. We don't know if that was just a friend, a business associate, a cousin. It was somebody that he knew. But then when you have a real, living, life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't want to keep it for yourself. Listen, you may say, I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not Pastor Alton. I don't know if I can preach. I don't know if I can tell 100 people, but I can tell one person. My best friend, my closest family member, my roommate, somebody. I can go say... I met a man, he changed my life. I mean, that, that's, that's the baby, bare beginnings of discipleship. If there's somebody that just knows a little bit less than you, go and tell them. Okay? And they do this. Listen to Calvin again, because some of you may say, God, oh man, I feel like this is more for like full-time ministry people. Maybe this is for Noah, maybe this is for Chad, I don't know if this is for me. Listen to what Calvin said. Jesus will give Peter unshaken courage. All the godly may justly be called Peter's. What he's saying is, listen, if Jesus did this for Peter, if Jesus said, hey, Peter, you're kind of shakable right now, but I'm going to make you a rock. If Jesus did it for Peter, he can do it for anybody. He will do it for anybody. If we trust him, if we pray, if we ask for him to do it. You know the guy that I mentioned earlier, Richard Baxter? They said when he first came to this city, this village, to be the pastor, that on most streets, maybe you'd find one 
one family that was like trying to be a good godly family, doing family worship and stuff. By the time he left that city, most streets had every family doing family worship. There had been 600 people in this one city that had professed faith in Christ. Now most of us have probably heard a story like that. I heard about a revival one time. But here's something I've never heard before. That they knew of, there were no backsliders. You understand how radical that is? In one guy's ministry, 600 people make a profession to follow Christ and over his whole lifetime, not one of them fell away. Why? Because the discipleship, the getting involved in people's life was so radical, it was so real. Now, the last thing I'll say is this, guys. Good discipleship has got to be Christ-centered. It's got to be Christ-centered, right? We're looking at the discipleship of Jesus. We're looking at the discipleship of John the Baptist. When you talk about the discipleship of Jesus, it was obviously Christ-centered. I mean, it was literally a group of men formed around the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like you don't get more Christ-centered than that. You say, but that's not me. I'm not Jesus. So how can I disciple people in a Christ-centered way? You do it the exact same way that John the Baptist did it, right? You're constantly pointing away from yourself towards Christ. You remember what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1, imitate me as I what? Imitate Christ, right? So yeah, you're getting people, look at me. I might be half a step ahead of you in the faith, but I ain't perfect. I don't have it all together. So only kind of look at me as like a way to look at Christ, to look past me, look beyond me, look to Christ. Keep pointing them to behold the Lamb of God. Consider the Lamb of God. Think about the Lamb of God. Think long and hard and deep about the Savior of the world who takes away our sin. Maybe the best thing, you know, my dad was the main guy that discipled me, and maybe the best thing that my dad did in discipleship, he modeled repentance. When he sinned, when he struggled, he would talk to me about it. When he lost his temper and he got angry, he would apologize, he would repent. And part of what he showed me was, hey son, I'm not your Savior. I might be your daddy. I might be a good daddy. But I can't save you ultimately. You've got to look past me to the Savior of your soul. That's the best kind of discipleship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We don't love you near enough. We want to love you more. We want to love you in a transformative way that overflows from our life so that we can impact others just like other people have impacted us. Lord, may we be so impressed in our hearts at the costly price that you paid for us on the cross, that we'd be more than happy and willing to pay the price to disciple others that you bring in our lives. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.